Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Bay Writers' Festival. You're listening to a podcast with Kate Granville in conversation with Rosemary Milsom, recorded live at the 2015 Byron Bay Writers' Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronbaywritersfestival.com.au. Kate Grenville is one of Australia's most celebrated writers. Her best-selling novels, which have won many awards and been published around the world, include The Secret River, Lillian's Story, The Idea of Perfection, The Lieutenant and Sarah Thornhill. Her non-fiction includes the family history that informed The Secret River, Searching for The Secret River, and her recent book, One Life, My Mother's Story, which I'm delighted to be speaking to Kate about today. Welcome, Kate. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. (laughs) Kate would like to start the session by doing a short reading from the book. Yes, for those of you who haven't read it. Can I just say that the the Indigenous Literacy Foundation is a fantastic thing to support. I wholeheartedly uh, advise you to put some money in the box. There are not many problems that can be helped by simply throwing money at them, uh, the Middle East and so on. But this is one problem. Getting books into remote Aboriginal communities is what the ILF does. And that's a really, really important thing to do. And it just takes a bit of money. So I recommend it. So this book is about my mother, who was born in 1912, and most unusually for her time and place and sex, she enrolled in a a pharmacy course. She became a pharmacist. That was in 1930 that she began her pharmacy career. She came from an unprivileged uh, country working class background. Her father was a shearer. And pharmacy was for her, as it was, and I suspect it still is, a step up into the professions for promising working class kids. And it was an education for my mother in more ways than just the obvious. So I'll just read a little tiny bit so that for those of you who haven't read the book, you can get a little flavour of what Rosemary and I will be talking about. Among 80 men, six women were doing chemistry and botany. They were expected to sit together in the front row. There was a Mavis, who she got a bit friendly with, and a clever young woman named Marjorie. She'd have liked to go to lunch with them and ask them what a covalent bond was, but the minute classes were over, she had to race for the tram so that she'd be at the shop on Inmore Road by one o'clock. Mr Stevens would be at the door with his watch in his hand. He'd tell her again that a master could dismiss an apprentice for tardiness. I should clarify that in those days, pharmacy wasn't a university degree. You did a couple of courses in chemistry and botany, but most of it you learned on the job, in the shop, as an apprentice for three years. The pharmacy was cramped and airless and full of the noise of traffic. The cars roared and beeped. The trams screamed going round into Stanmore Road. The dispensary was a dark, smelly corner under the stairs. In rows, with their gilt-lettered labels, the pharmacy bottles looked a bit grand. It was only when you shook the stuff out that you could see it was nothing but dried-up leaves, seeds, gritty stuff like sand. Mr Stevens measured the amounts. Then it was Nance's job to grind them in the mortar and make them into a pill or a cream. Moira was the apprentice that she was replacing. Moira had done her finals but was staying on for a week to show Nance the ropes. At the end of each day, they went over the dockets together. 
Some of the things on the dockets were a mystery to Nance, and finally she asked, what are these FL things? Oh, Nance, keep your voice down for heaven's sake, Moira said, and jerked her head to tell Nance to follow her into the back room. Look, she said, they're French letters. <laughs> you know anything about them? No? Well, they go over the fellow's willy, stop the babies coming. Nance was discovering that Moira was a coarse sort of person, though not, <laughs> though not when the boss, Mr Stevens, was about. Know what a willy is, do you, Nance? Country girl like you? You'd have seen the bulls and that? Well, the bulls and the horses were, in fact, all Nance knew about sex, apart from a chaste kiss by Tom Weidler after the Tamworth Memorial Dance. She felt like an innocent fool, but at least now she understood about the young men who'd come in expecting to be served by Mr Stevens and got her or Moira instead. They'd stammer out a request for a comb or a pair of shoelaces, <laughs> blushing, mumbling, spilling their change. The fellows are awkward about coming in and asking, Moira said. Needn't be, in my view. I like a fellow with a French letter in his back pocket. <laughs> indicates, you know, I suppose an awakening once, once Nance started working and she was exposed to city ways, possibly, being in a city, a more urban environment, having come, lived a lot of the time in the country. She ends up herself using contraception when she's, when she's married, doesn't she? Mm. Can, you, can you talk a bit about that? I mean, I can't relate to that as being radical, obviously. I'm, <laughs> I'm post-pill generation. Mm. But it, I imagine it was to make... And she refer, you write in the book that, um, you know, that, that she thinks other... What, she says something about, so many of them must have been like me, mm. wanting it both ways. Children, of course, but a life of their own too. Mm. Which is quite a radical idea to have at that time, I imagine, that, you know, you want to control having a baby, so it's the time that suits you, because mm. you have things that you want to pursue for yourself. Mm. Yes. Look, mum was, the, mum was the pioneer generation that made your life possible, and also my life possible, in fact, um, in the sense that she was the first generation to try to combine motherhood and a career. And she was born in 1912, and, and the world she was born into was a world in which women very often missed out on any kind of education because their fathers said, oh, education's wasted on a girl. Um, and so they were taken out of school at the minimum leave, leaving age. Wasted on a girl because they'll just go and get married. Uh, so, you know, talk about a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you don't have the education, then of course you have no options but to get married and uh, live on some man's earnings. Um, in the world that she was born into, um, if women went out to work, if they had to for some reason, they were paid half of what a man was paid on the theory that they couldn't possibly need to be a breadwinner. Whatever they earned was just kind of pin money. Um, and above all, of course, she, she grew up in a world where, as you say, contraception was, well, let's say informal. One of the fun things I researched doing this book was what contraception was like. Um, in the early years of the 20th century. And one book that I read solemnly, solemnly claimed that this would be 100% successful. After the act, the woman should leap out of bed, run around the room three times, skip vigorously for five minutes <laughs> and cough. <laughs> 
this was uh, this was supposed to do the job. M might possibly why they all had such big families. <laughs> so the incredible freedom. Now, French letters were around by the 1930s, but they were only for young men on the make. A respectable married man did not use French letters. And the best that a woman could do was a bit of sponge on a string, which you soaked in vinegar. And I'll leave it to your imagination what you did with it after that. So um, for her to, um, when she married, uh, she was, must have been one of the first women to go and be fitted for a cap. Because she was a pharmacist, she knew doctors who were friendly enough. But it is my son, when he read this book, he said the incredible thing about this story is that this is somebody that I knew. He remembers his granny. It's not that long ago, and yet it is an unimaginably different world in which women had not the faintest control over their lives. Mm. She didn't want to do pharmacy. She, you know, Nance wanted to be a teacher. Mm. And her mother, uh, you know, uneducated, um, tough woman, un unlikable, I would have to say, mm -hmm. from, from uh, reading the book, Dolly, uh, pushed her into pharmacy. And, you know, against her wishes, she went off to Sydney. It had ramifications, enormous ramifications. And in a sense, in spite of Dolly, she became, you know, she took took on this path that, 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 that her mother had paid for her. And in a way, it was the best gift her mother ever gave her, wasn't it? Because mm. there wasn't a lot of love. She was shunted from pillar to post, different houses, different, living with different families when she was young. And so it's interesting that her profession, which was so, you know, influential in, in, her, in, her, direct, in you know, her life, was a gift from her mother. Yes, it's one of the things... I mean, there are many things that I'd love to just have ten minutes with Mum and have a conversation with her... Uh, and that's one of them. She never forgave her mother for forcing her to do pharmacy instead of becoming a teacher, which is what she'd wanted to. She loved literature and languages, and mum would have been an English and language teacher. But her mother bullied her into doing pharmacy. And for, for her whole life, it was kind of the emblem of her mother's uncaringness that she had forced her into this profession. But when I was researching the book, I realised... It took me a while, too, to overcome that prejudice against my grandmother, who was a very unlikable woman, um, to realise that actually her mother had been doing her a favour. When, when mum was at high school, uh, particularly in the country, a pharmacist almost had the status of the doctor. In pre-Medicare days, another thing that you would not know anything about, <laughs> it actually cost quite a lot of money to go to the doctor and there was no rebate. Uh, so poor people only went to the doctor if they were dying, basically, and not always then. What they did instead was they went to the pharmacist. And he usually, and it usually was a he, wore a white coat, and often on the awning of the shop, you can see it in the old photographs, he's described as doctor so-and-so. And in fact, in the pharmaceutical um, journal, the Pharmaceutical Association Journal for 1923, I read some advice from an old journalist to a beginner. And he said, if a, if a customer comes in and says, are you Dr. Jones, you should simply say, my name is Jones. <laughs> in other words, allowing them to think that you're a doctor. So that's the context in which my grandmother bullied my mother into doing what in those days, for a working class girl with, with no kind of privileges, was a giant step 
into something that was very close to being a doctor. And as you say, the other remarkable thing about pharmacy is that unlike most jobs, men and women were paid the same. My mother always said it was because they probably thought there wouldn't be any women doing pharmacists. <laughs> but it worked in her favour. And as you say, pharmacy, although mum hated it, uh, it opened doors when she needed to make some money later on. She could actually open her own businesses, which not many women had the training to do. Your mum strikes me as a natural storyteller. I mean, you, you mention um, in the postscript, I think, or no, in the, in the beginning, in the epilogue, that uh, she used to tell you constantly about your, your background, your great, her great-great-grandfather, uh, you know, which obviously Solomon formed the basis of the Secret River. And you grew up around these stories, but you didn't really appreciate them when you were being told them. And, mm. and she also documented her own memories of her life in exercise books. And she wanted to write her own story, but it, it was in fits and, st you know, she started and then it, drift, it drifted off. And you were able to access those exercise books. And you also interviewed her, didn't you? You spoke with her mm. and, uh, and recorded mm. those interviews. Why the transition from, I suppose, a straight, you know, family history, I'm going to do this for the family, when, how did that evolve, evolve into this book, which is a kind of blurring of an autobiography and fiction? I, 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 it's a really unique blend of genres, in a sense. How did that process take place? It's, I, should, I should clarify that it's actually a blending of biography. Oh, biography, and sorry. Sorry, it's, biography. This is not about me. Um, yeah, look, Mum always did tell us these stories. She told us the stories about our convict ancestor long before it was fashionable to have a convict ancestor. In fact, hers was the generation where people used to go into the Mitchell Library and rip out the page <laughs> in the <laughs> register that proved that they had convict ancestry. So in that time, she used to tell us with great pride, well, not pride in the man himself, but pride in the fact that this was the truth we had convict, our convict ancestor was Solomon Wiseman, and he had a very bad reputation. He, there was nothing very nice about Solomon Wiseman. So she told us all those stories, and it, it, it became apparent to me that the way other families pass on silver teapots and lace christening robes, what our family had to pass on were these stories about all the generations, pardon me, between Solomon Wiseman and us. They were the family treasure they were the family legacy, these stories. And they had been passed orally, all those five generations. And I had a nasty feeling that they were probably going to stop with me because I had a shocking memory. And although I found them reasonably interesting, I have to admit that I glazed over when Mum started in yet again about <laughs> Solomon Wiseman. And, you know, the wheel turns, uh, what goes around comes around, as they say. I now see the very same look on my children's faces. <laughs> when I started about this stuff. She also knew that her story as a woman growing up in the, well, whose lifespan really spanned the 20th century, that that story was worth telling. She was not from the class uh, about whom biographies are usually written. You know, she was from the working class. But she could see that she had ridden the waves of incredible revolutionary change that had happened over the 20th century. She'd been involved with just about all of them. Uh, including the fact that she married a man who turned out to be a Trotskyite revolutionary. So, you know, she was involved with all those giant changes. In her one little life, she kind of uh, encapsulated those, those enormous changes. She knew that story was worth telling. So I bullied her into writing bits of it down. I said to her, Mum, I'm going to forget all this. And I did interview her. And I really recommend 
going and just putting the tape recorder on the table and saying to your mother or aunt or grandmother or grandfather, what about a cup of tea? And you just sit down and you start talking. Mm. It's a fabulous resource when they're gone. And I, when she died, I got them out, I typed them all up, and I thought I would just do a version for my mother's five grandchildren, my two children and my three nieces. And I'd take it to office works and I'd have five copies nicely bound. But luckily, before I did this, I showed it to my brother. And he looked at it and he said, no, this book deserves to be written, read by more than five people. He said, it reminds me of A.B. Facey's book, A Fortunate Life, mm. which probably a lot of you have read. That same sense of the 99% whose story is not usually told, here it is, their story in their own voice. So at that point, and with his encouragement through 27 drafts... 27 drafts! Look, it took me that long to get from a rather boring standard family story to something that... To, the to build the narrative. Life. To build a narrative, yeah. But how, how normal? What, what do you? How many drafts would you normally do? Well, look, twenty-seven is not abnormal for me. I am. <laughs> I think you could say I'm an abnormally slow learner when it comes to. <laughs> or a perfectionist. A or a perfectionist. <laughs> I think I am a perfectionist. Yeah. I mean, the difficulty was I had her voice. But it wasn't quite enough, unlike Facey's book. I couldn't just run her voice. I did have to intervene, like a standard biography. And that then brings up the question, the problem, the technical problem, that you have two voices going mm. on in a book. So that's why it took me 27 drafts. It was a hard book to write. Mm. Did you, I mean, obviously you, you knew a lot about your mother and your mother was very open uh, about her life. Uh, you know, she was open with the, you about her affairs and that she um, had had sex before marriage, which again was... Um, I, I mean, look, I'm sure it happened, but the fact oh, that yes. she was so open about it, yeah. uh, she, she, it seems like she was very upfront and, mm -hmm. and pragmatic about those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. But as you were writing and going over her own words... Did you come to know something about your mother you didn't know before you started? Yes, look, the, one of the greatest gifts, I said this this morning, so forgive me if I'm repeating myself to any of you, one of her greatest gifts was that she didn't leave any skeletons in cupboards to come tumbling out when I went to write her story. She spared me that. I think that would be quite traumatic. So she did tell me all the things that in some families would be regarded as shocking, like mm. the ones you've mentioned. They didn't shock her. She was extremely matter-of-fact about all that. And I think, actually, coming from the working class as opposed to the middle class, she might have been spared some of that sort of pseudo-bogus gentility... Shame. You know, and the shame. shame. All yeah. the shame. She had no shame. People, in her view, we, we were animals and we might as well accept that. Sexual attraction was a reality. You had to make sure you didn't hurt people, but there was nothing to be kind of embarrassed or ashamed about. It was the way nature had intended us to behave. Um, so there really wasn't anything... Uh, I'm sorry, I've forgotten your question. Um, just did, was it <laughs> <laughs> I was going to try and fake it, but I thought, no. <laughs> be up front, like Nance. Yes. Um, <laughs> I, I asked whether there were things that, um, you know, that obviously you, she was, had been up front with you, but as you were writing that you came to become, a, maybe just be, grew more aware of mm. an aspect of your mother, an aspect of her yeah. personality. Look, I think probably the thing that was really an eye-opener to me was the thing where my own experience intersected with hers. When I began to write about my mother's experience of starting uh, pharmacy businesses, 
which both times she did with young children underfoot, the first time with my brothers, who were only five and three, and this was 1946, it was unheard of for a woman to not only work, go out to work but start her own business with two little children. And then again, when I was f about five, she had an, a second pharmacy shop. Um, I can remember being behind the counter getting stuck into the barley sugar while she wasn't <laughs> looking. In each case... Uh, she was forced out after a short time because she could not juggle. There was no organised childcare of any kind and she just couldn't juggle. The thing that you and I were talking about at the, you know, before, just before the session, uh, we want to be good mothers. We also want to be out in the world doing these interesting things like running businesses or careers. Uh, and we also, because somebody has to do it, uh, have to run a house, get the dinner on the table and the the clothes washed and everything. And my mother, like so many of, of women of that generation, just had no help with any of that. That's the point at which I thought, how little has changed. So mm. much has changed in some ways. We have contraception, we have after-school care, we have husbands who at least in theory agree that, you know, the housework is partly their responsibility. <laughs> yeah, we like to think that anyway. <laughs> but I think that response probably um, reveals what the reality is. So that's the point at which I thought, oh, gosh, Mum, I wish I had understood that mm. more. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we, we were talking before the session and I was saying to Kate that one of the, the things that stands out to me is the book was a, is a really nice reminder of how far we've come as women. Uh, you know, the fact that there were six students doing pharmacy who were women in a, in a group of 80, and now, you know, there'd be, you'd expect half a pharmacy degree, to, you know, to be filled with women, and we wouldn't even bat an eyelid. But the one area that hasn't changed is this juggling act with children, and it, and it doesn't matter how you try to work it, we, we still haven't, you know, found the right sort of... I mean, it, you know, if you could find the right combination, you'd... Mm. I, I just don't think we've, gone, we've come that far in that area yet. Um, interesting, you, you, uh, Nance opened the first pharmacy because her husband, and I'd like to talk about um, Ken now, had started a law... He'd, got, he'd had sort of various kind of identities but he decided to go into law and it wasn't going that well and and so she decided well you know I'm going to go out and earn some money. Mm. Uh, this book is also about a marriage I mean I know it's about your mother but it is also about their marriage mm. and and your father and I was thinking that you know for children there's a lot in your parents marriage that is concealed uh, you know we're not privy to conversations at night when they're tucked up in bed and there's a part of your parents' marriage that you just can never really be fully included in. Was that difficult for you exploring that aspect of your mother's life, the, I mean, their marriage? Because that's usually territory we don't go into too deeply as, as children. Yes, it was one of the very hard parts of the book because um, we don't go into it and we shouldn't. I mean, all those Freudian taboos about, you know, the, be the parent's bedroom door is closed. Well, it should be. That is, that is appropriate for children not to, not to need to know about that aspect of their parents. Um, but when I wrote the book, uh, it, uh, the other reason it took me 27 drafts is that it was a process of becoming... Uh, coming, coming to know my mother in a different way. I knew her very well as a child. In writing the book, I came to know her woman to woman, like someone I might have, you know, befriended, who might have become a good friend. Um, a marriage is 
probably one of the most important things in anybody's life, and that partnership, which lasted for 25 years with my parents, is a gigantic part of your life. So I had to, I had to go in there and talk about it. And I had to talk about both the strengths and the weaknesses. The strengths were that my father was, my mother was quite an unconventional woman, of, obviously, you know, from even what you've heard so far. Um, but so was my father. He was from the opposite sort of social class. His father was a solicitor. And my father also had gone through law and became a solicitor. Um, he'd grown up in a nice middle-class uh, suburb of Sydney, Strathfield, all very nice and sort of anglophile, anti-macassars on every armchair, that kind of thing, uh, a coaster under every drink. Um, but he had turned his back on all that. He'd become, as I said before, Comrade Roberts, Trotskyite revolutionary. <laughs> because both my mother and father had just lived through... They met when, in 1940, and at that point they had both just lived through 10 years of the Depression, in which they had seen what must have looked then like the end of capitalism. Uh, somebody said that anybody who isn't a communist at 20 has no head, uh, no, has no heart. Anybody who's still a communist at 50 has no, uh, whatever the other one is. Sorry, I'm... <laughs> I've got a really Kate, bad cold, yeah, so I'm not Kate's not quite well, my so sparkly <laughs> face, so forgive me. Anyway, the thing about Dad. So here were two people who were both prepared to kind of disobey the rules of their backgrounds and just go for what seemed like a good idea. And so they were both prepared to break the rules. Uh, they were unconventional people. And so in, that, in many senses they were well-suited. In other ways they were not well-suited. I think sexually perhaps they probably weren't very compatible. And my father became a sort of a serial philanderer, mistress after mistress, most of whom my mother knew about. So that was pretty painful. And in the end the, the marriage ended because my father had one affair too many and the woman got pregnant and he, uh, he did the right thing and left my mother. Uh, <laughs> So that but was, she, uh, she did yeah. contemplate leaving him again yes. in quite a radical yeah. move. And there, there's um, the moment in the book where she's working in a hospital, they're newly married and she's very excited about this marriage and, and this union and itching to come home and share stories about the nur which nurse is seeing which nurse and, um, you know, this man tried to jump off a cliff and kill himself and he just broke his legs and full of all this kind of... All these, she's a curious person and interested in other people mm. and he never wanted to listen. He never wanted to engage with her and I felt, you know, this pang for her... Uh, and I wondered, and I kept thinking, leave him, leave him. And then she actually contemplates, and I'm thinking, yes, yes. And she doesn't. And again, why doesn't she? She makes that decision mm. over children. She wants children. And she decides to stay and, and become a mother. Mm. And, and, and in that, the marriage kind of perks up a bit when she first gets pregnant. Mm. And she thinks this is going to be a good turn. Um, but, you know, they were unsuited. She smoked. He didn't like smoking. She played cards. He didn't play cards. All those little things that seem trivial, but, in, but it's mm. kind of symbolise bigger differences in a sense. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, she thought many times about leaving and she told me that very frankly. And uh, once she got pregnant, she said, as many of us have thought, when is the right time to leave? You know, when they're very little and, and kind of won't notice or older on, or, you know, there is kind of no moment. And finally she thought, I cannot deprive these boys, my older brothers, of their father. But, you know, when I was of an age to be able to talk about these things with my mother in my adolescence, 
she said to me once, look, you know that my marriage with your father hasn't been very happy in many ways, but she said, I take the big view. She said, nature doesn't care about the happiness or unhappiness of the man and woman involved in the marriage. All nature cares about is uh, that a, a, good, a good sperm has been put with a good egg <laughs> and produced strong offspring that can go on and reproduce and multiply. So she had this fabulously biologically reductionist kind of view, <laughs> even of her, her most personal thing, her unhappy marriage. What, a, what an amazing mind. <laughs> I know, but I felt sad for her though. Yeah. Because I, yeah. I felt on so many levels she was a, um, you know, a groundbreaker and 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 forging ahead and you know th- th- she was featured in a newspaper article because they <laughs> built their own house and she was she taught herself to build a house and they, they photographed the photographer came and photographed the wife helping build the family home. I mean, I, I just mm. yeah, she's and and yet when it came to. I suppose one of the most pivotal aspects of her life, I felt she settled, you know, and 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 and, yeah. and to complicate it, there's another man, you know, the the, the sort of romantic. I took him as you know her boss, um, Charlie. There's a point before she gets married where she has a relationship with with her boss, and he heads off overseas. He's do, he becomes a surgeon. He's training to be a surgeon. And um, and she's in she's in you know she's attracted to him. There seems to be this chemistry. He's this cheerful, charming person. But she lets him sail away. Mm-hmm. Did she talk to you much about that as as a decision? And particularly in yeah. light of then going on to have an unhappy marriage. Yes, Charlie Gledhill was the was the boss that she met, who I think was probably a, a real charmer. Um, again, I spoke about this briefly this morning, so forgive me if I'm repeating myself. The thing about Charlie Gledhill is that he really liked my mother. He could see that she was um, interesting and intelligent. And letters that I've seen between the two of them, it's almost as if she was a uh, just a friend, almost could be a man. He was a, she was a mate. Uh, and she was very conscious of the fact that he wasn't kind of in love with her. He didn't love her. He wanted her to go with him to Edinburgh where he was going to study. But he wasn't saying, I'm in love with you, let's get married and spend our lives together. And I think that um, my mother had had a loveless childhood of being shipped from pillar to post, as you said, and having parents who really didn't care about her. And I think that something in her said, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not going to settle for someone who doesn't love me. I'm actually, much as I love this guy, I'm going to hold out. I'm worth holding out for someone who loves me. I deserve to be loved. Mm-hmm. So she wouldn't take... Second, uh, second best there. Mm. But the thing about the family home is interesting. I mean, it's a way in which my parents were compa- quite compatible. It was 1947 and you couldn't get bricks to build a family home because of the war, couldn't get anything. So my father went down to the local creek and came back with a bucket of clay and he said, uh, didn't the Medes and Persians make bricks out of clay? Couldn't we do this, Nance? And mum briefly had gone to a convent school so she knew her exodus. She said, yes, we'll need straw, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and so in the kitchen oven, they tried to make bricks. Now, to me, that is a sign of two people who have an awful lot in common. Um, but she, he taught her to, to lay those bricks. They did finally scam some bricks from somewhere. And uh, the newspaper came along and took a picture of her up on the roof, hammering the, having the roof on. And the headline is, Wife Helps to Build Home. <laughs> But in the body of the story, my father is quoted as saying, 
Um, my wife has laid all the piers for the, for the house and she spends her spare time driving nails into the floorboards. So he was giving her full credit. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't all horrible. I mean, no. obviously, you know, they, they, they had a partnership in many respects. Mm. And um, were there aspects that you reveal in the book uh, that you were concerned, um, you know, I suppose that she, your mother might be judged? That, that, that you might have been, were you concerned at all that she might have been, might be judged by us, the reader, and, uh, you know, seen in a negative light? Um, look, I, maybe I'm blind with admiration by my, to my own mother, but I can't think of anything that would have... What are you thinking of? No, I just, I just wondered if you... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to put you on the spot. <laughs> I suppose, I, I, you know, maybe staying in the marriage or maybe, oh, okay. you know, um, the way she saw her own mother, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, look, everybody makes... These, these decisions are hideously difficult. I mean, many people in this tent would have had that moment of, do I leave? And if I'm going to leave, how do I do it? And when do I do it? Many, many people have faced that decision. And in a way... It's one of those decisions there's kind of no, no, whichever decision you make, it's kind of going to be not quite right. And that's just the way life is. And uh, I think mum was of the view that you just, uh, you made the best decision you could. And having made it, you then made it wholeheartedly. She said to me once, I didn't want to hang around in the marriage, but then be kind of become a grizzling wife. Once I made the decision to stay, I was going to be wholehearted about it and make it work. Mm. Thinking about you becoming a writer, um, she helped you, did she? She used to help look after your kids and give you those moments mm. so you could sort of scrounge a little bit of time of your own so you could write, which is lovely yeah. because it's almost as though she wanted to do for you what no one was able to do for her. Yeah, that's right. I, I think if someone had done that, what she used to do for me, I'd take my little kids when they were just babies over to her place and she would have made me a cut lunch just the way she had when I was at school and a thermos of tea... And uh, I'd leave the kids with her, or usually one at a time, and drive off to a local park not far away. And I would park the car, get into the back seat with one of the kids' boogie boards across my desk, or across my knees by way of desk, and the thermos beside me, my sandwiches. And I'd have a couple of hours of the most fabulous work. When you're a mother of young children, you can never quite submerge. Part of your mind is always thinking, are they okay? But for just those couple of hours, I knew that they were absolutely safe and they would be absolutely happy with my mother. If someone had done that for her, heaven knows what she could have achieved. Mm. Yeah, and, and, and the changes in a generation too. I mean, mm. I, I, was I was interested in her mother who, again, married to someone who, you know, had a lot of women and um, uh, moved around a lot, poverty. And then the change to your mum mm. and her studying and, and becoming a professional and, and opening her own business and then obviously you and... and that sort of it was almost this development. Each each gave something. Even though Dolly mm. couldn't give your grand, you know, your mother love and, and comfort, uh, she gave her a, pushed her into a profession. Yeah. And uh, and then your mother then helped you. And obviously mm. she must have supported you and your writing and mm. given her own passion for telling stories. Was she proud of you? I know that oh, she died yes. while you were writing The Secret River, so mm. she never read the finished book. Was she mm. proud of you taking that leap? Yes, she, I remember her saying to me, this will be your great book. And I said, oh, don't be ridiculous, Mum. Um, but she knew I was writing it and she knew what it was going to be about. I told her what it was about. And she, she was so pleased that I had 
taken a story that she had told me and, and made it into something that was way beyond just the personal story about the family. Yes, that thing of each generation of women helping the next, you know, you have to say to yourself, well, what, what have I done to help my children? I've done what I could. Uh, but I think we have to pay homage to those brave women who, without any help from the culture, without even the language to talk about it, um, managed to give us things that they themselves didn't have. Somehow they knew they knew that it was worth, worth fighting for those things. For example, all the women who would have had to fight with their husbands, not that this was my mother's case, in order to get the daughters an education, say, no, our daughter is going to stay and finish high school. There would have been many, many, many houses across Australia where a woman had to really go to the wall for the sake of her uh, daughter's education. Were you worried at any point uh, that, you know, with a lot of writing about it, your family or your life, I mean, it is, it, it's part of your life, your, your history. Is this a story? I mean, did you ever ask yourself, you know, is this a story for the wider world? Oh, all the time. That's why the 27, 27 <laughs> drafts. I, I, until, until about April this year... I, th I, I could only say to myself, I know that my mother is fascinating. I love my mother. I find her story interesting. But that's because she's my mother. Will anybody else? Mm -hmm. So the book came out in about March. And uh, by April, it was obvious that it was doing what I had hoped and what I think my mother would have hoped, which is that to say, in one level, mum's story is absolutely representative. She speaks for a whole generation of women like her. And in other ways, she's an incredible pioneer. She had just enough opportunities that she was able to do things that many women didn't do. And so that has struck a chord. So um, now, retrospectively, I can say, yes, it, it does seem that there is a story there. Well, I think we all know women like your mum. Mm. We all, if it's not our own mother that's an aunt or mm. uh, stories of our grandmother, you know, making decisions and, and, and being pioneers in their own, in their own way. And so, mm. in a sense, your mum, and I, it sounds a little bit like a cliche, but is sort of every woman. Mm. Absolutely. In, in yeah. a way. But she's yeah. unique. Yeah. There are, un there are new, unique, obviously, aspects about yeah. her. Mm -hmm. but, um, but there is that sense. I mean, there's the depression, there's the wars. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are these great social upheavals that she experienced mm. in her lifetime. And then obviously women's changing role, which was quite dramatic in a, mm. in a short space of time. Mm. There was a quite dramatic kind of leap forward for women. And so there, were, there are those bigger themes. Did those bigger themes, were they clear to you initially? Or did you sort of, was it sitting back? Because I know you said that you, you, know, you wanted to do it initially just for the family. Was it in... Delving deeper, you could see her in that context of history. Yes, and, and some of the middle drafts, say from about draft eight to about 18 probably, were my attempt to tell the story of the 20th century and its history through the, through the kind of story of the individual. So I did an enormous amount of research about things like the fall of Singapore and the Depression and so on. And I just couldn't make it interesting, basically. Um, <laughs> but I was passionate about the fact that this was the, the... My mother is interesting as an individual, but her story is worth telling because it tells the story of a time and a place, of an era. And it's our era. It's our culture. It's where we just came from yesterday. And it's important to know those things. I mean, for example, the lack of... Um, well, for example, labour protection in my mother's story. 
you know, she was, uh, she describes her pharmacy days as slavery, and it was. She had to work seven days a week, not full days on Saturdays and Sundays, but she had to work every day of the week, and she had two, two weeks holiday a year. There was absolutely no, there was no union, there was no form of labour protection whatsoever. Um, those things inspired me and fired me with passion, but I have to say I just could not make them interesting on the page. So they're still there, but they're kind of between the lines now rather than on them. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say it's subtle. It's yeah. not a history lesson. Reading the Good. book is anything but a history lesson. I mean, it's so... It's, you write, I mean, you just have such a lovely touch. And obviously it's, it's glowing and, and there's a affection. You feel the affection for your mother coming through the words. Uh, but there is that sense of also looking at her as a person. And I know, again, you did touch on this this morning, but I'm in, interested in this because I've had this discussion with my own mother about as an adult, when you start perceiving your own mother, not just as your mo the mother figure, but as her own person. Mm -hmm. talk, can you talk a bit about that? Was there, I mean, you, you obviously had a close relationship with her uh, and she was very open with you. When, when did you sort of that change for you and you saw her as an individual, her own person? Separate to being your mother? I suppose, um, obviously when I was writing the book was when that mostly happened. But there's also a moment, and some of you might have this, have experienced this, when you suddenly realise that you have become the grown-up in the situation. My mother was nearly 90 when she died and she still had all her marbles and she was fantastic. But there was a moment some years before she died when I suddenly thought I can no longer go to my mother and say what should I do? Because actually, she won't have any better idea than I have. And, and that's a thing that I think many of us have experienced. And it's a great grief, because suddenly you have lost that sense of there being someone, you know, on the rank above you, who kind of knows more that you can turn to. And on the contrary, you have to then begin making decisions for your parent. So that's perhaps the beginning of the process that let me write this book and get to know my mother as a woman, as well as, of course, I will always be her, her daughter. What about your life? How, how would you feel or have, had you thought about anyone writing about you in this way? Yes. <sighs> <laughs> have you burnt all the papers? Have you burnt all the love letters? Oh, have you <laughs> actually, funny you should ask, yes. <laughs> I bought a scanner, uh, bought a, yeah, not a scanner, a shredder. <laughs> Not long ago, and I have been, I have been hoeing into the old love letters and things, uh, because really? writing. Are you really are you serious? Oh yeah, seriously. Yes. Shredding them. Shredding them seemed like the better. I did try burning them, but you know the rules in Sydney are quite strict about burning. <laughs> <laughs> and I then tried drowning them. I filled the bath with water. I thought <laughs> the paper will, you know, disintegrate. <laughs> I have to tell you, it doesn't. <laughs> have to be at sea for four months before yeah. they disintegrate. I agree. No, it was a bad idea. And shredding uh, damp paper is quite hard. <laughs> don't, you think, don't you think that's not hypocritical, but a contradiction <laughs> that you've... I mean, yes, your mother was up front, but, I mean, there are as aspects in this book that maybe she would not have wanted in the public domain... And, and yet here you are with your own, <laughs> your own sort of uh, personal yeah. life controlling that and making sure that no one after you're gone can possibly write something like well, this. Well, they probably can. Look, the thing is, I think there would be nothing in this. I mean, I didn't put everything in this book that I knew. 
um, I, oh, I, really? I'm here to tell you. <laughs> I don't think that there's anything in this book that my mother wouldn't have been quite, quite pleased, actually, to have known, and my, my, I think my brother agrees. Um, and who knows what my mother destroyed? Who knows whether she also bought a shredder sometime before she died? <laughs> She was pioneering. Maybe she, she was. Maybe yeah. she invented yeah. her own type of shredder. Yeah. No, I think we all have the right to, to, to pass on. I think it's important to pass on those stories. Um, but they're always going to be t- tempered and shaped by the, the shape of ourselves that we want to, to be seen in the future. Um, look, I shredded those love letters and so on and some of my really egregious early writing because I had the, f- the sudden pang of thinking that when I die, my children will read this and I won't be there to explain, look, I was only 17, forgive me, you know. <laughs> uh, so let's not put them through that, not put them through that difficulty as mum didn't put, it, put me through it. She didn't leave anything that was kind of nasty to discover. Mm. You said that you didn't put everything in the book, and I know I wouldn't expect <laughs> you to reveal it on the stage. But what what was the test for what how you made that decision about what to include and what not? I, 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 right. so I don't expect you to reveal what you didn't put in. No, but what was the test for that? Look again, Mum made it relatively easy because she left these things which were kind of her memoirs. She obviously very much wanted to tell the story of her own life, and she started many fragments, and they all started grandly. She'd say something like. I have always wanted to write a book. It can't be that hard. Many other people do it. I've just never had the right pencil. <laughs> and she'd write for a couple of pages and then she'd kind of peter out. You could, you could feel her just kind of losing confidence in it. So I had every faith that whatever was in that kind of context, that mode, the memoir mode, was stuff that she regarded as stuff that she would be very happy to see uh, out in the public domain. And that's the stuff that I put in the book. Now, she left other writings which were much more personal. They were the kind of um, outpourings that most of us do. You know when you're miserable and you think, I'll write in my journal and there's this outpouring of grizzling about something or other, usually somebody that's done something wrong to you. Um, There was a lot of that. There was, you know, unhappy personal stuff about when my father left. None of that was written with the public in mind, and so I haven't used any of that. I've summed up my mother's life after my father left, at just the point when he was about to leave, I think this is when I finished the book. Um, I've summed it up in its, in its you know, shape, but I haven't gone into any detail about the interiority of her life then, because I think that's, that's private. Mm. And there's, you know, there's respect. Respect yeah, for your, for your yeah. mother's privacy. Yeah. You include um, in the postscript, which is really great. I was so because you end it, um, you know, at a point, and there seems so much more to your mother's life. She does become a teacher. I was so mm-hmm. heartened <laughs> by that that she does become a teacher mm. uh, on her own terms. Goes back to university, studies, and teaches. Uh, that must have been wonderful for her to finally yeah. do the thing that she'd longed to do as a as a as a young woman. She said to me once, you know, Kath, as she used to call me, you know, Kath, a woman can do everything, just not all at the same time. Mm. Yeah. And, and if you live long truth. enough, you can, you can manage everything. Yeah. yeah. And she, she I mean, your, your father, they separated and your father, um, you know, went on his own way. Were you close to him? 
after I mean, as I said, that this isn't really in the book. I mm-hmm. mean, it ends mm. at a point we're not we're not we don't know that. But I'm just interested because he strikes me as a I don't know. There's a the way the book is written. I could say he's a disappointment um, to to your mother uh, in terms of what she expected for the marriage. Mm. How how did how was your relationship? Oh, it was actually very good. I mean, Dad was a a, a charmer. He was extremely witty. Uh, had a fabulous, funny turn of phrase. Uh, loved a good pun. Uh, could tell you probably more than you wanted to know about Trotsky. If you push the right button, you got all the old Trotsky stuff. Um, no, he was excellent company. He had grown up in a in a in a family where emotion uh, was n- never expressed. You know, a very uptight middle class Anglophile household. He said, "I grew up in a." a household of the the stiff upper lip um, in which bodily functions were enveloped in silence. So it was very difficult to get close to that emotionally, but you knew that the emotion was there. So I got on with him extremely well and I continued to even after he left my mother. I mean, that took a bit of juggling, as it does with divided families. But uh, no, I think we managed it all quite well. Look, we might leave it there and open the f- open up to questions from the audience. If you could raise your hand and there's microphones around. If you... Yep. Sorry. Yep, there's a lady down the back. Yes. Um, this is actually a, a bit of a technical question. Speak right into the microphone. Is it, is it? Um, how do you decide after 27, 28 drafts, w- w- uh, this is the story, this is it? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, how do you finish the book? Look, at the point where you realise that you've removed and put back the same couple of paragraphs about eight times. <laughs> that's the point when you think, hand it over to an editor. Yeah. <laughs> Another hand. Yes. Thank you. I wondered, Kate, uh, how long is it since your mother died? She died in 2002, so that's 13 years ago. And you've you've only just come to bring the threads together. Yes, I got everything out about two years after she died. It took me a while because I thought it would be a very sad thing to do. In fact, it wasn't. It was fabulous to put on the tapes and hear her voice, hear the clinking of the teacups and all the rest of it. It was fabulous. I really recommend it. Uh, But it was a difficult book to write. I kept giving up on it and putting it away. But I did write two other books in that same eight-year period. Oh, yes. I wondered because... You love her more now than you ever did, wouldn't you I say? I probably do, yes, that's right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's what I... F- I did that too. Mm. And uh, I never was interested in their backgrounds, anything to do with them, nothing. Mm. But I discovered the same courage and uh, enormously fun things mm. that, that she did. And uh, drove a Red Cross van in in England uh, in the First World War. I was born just after. But uh, 
she, and she'd only just learned to drive in, a, in Australia. Right. Yes. You, should, you should write about all that. All these stories get lost if people don't write them down. This lady's mother drove an ambulance in the First World War. You know, you should write down whatever you remember. If she's still alive, record it. Because if you don't, it will vanish forever like an extinct plant. Yes. I apologise if this could, you've answered this in a different way, but you mentioned early on that it was um, complex to combine your mother's words and your own words. Could you give us some sort of feeling as to the process you went through to accomplish that? Mm, okay. How to combine my mother's words and my own words. Um, look, I began by just stringing together all my mother's words, hoping that that would be enough. And then I realised that there were very important parts of her life. For example, she said, I met your father at a political meeting in 1939 and we married in May 1940. Now, that was all she said about that. But actually, there had to be a whole backstory there of meeting and falling in love and making a decision, all that stuff. Um, so I realised I had to intervene in, in, and, and add stuff to my mother's story. Um, Mum's voice in the memoirs is quite strong. It's quite a strong idiosyncratic voice. And even if I tried to make mine utterly neutral, it seemed to me that there was a kind of... You know, I hate books that have two different threads. I always just read one. You know, if one's in mm. italics and one's not, <laughs> I just skip the one that's boring and I just flip <laughs> over the pages. It's a, technically, it's a, real, it's a real difficulty, I think, to try and have a book with two voices. It's like listening to two pieces of music at once. So it was in draft 20... So each draft, I, I got rid of a little bit more of my mother's actual words. And finally, in draft 27, I, I took the plunge and I thought, let's just see how it looks if I take them out. I can always go back to draft 26. And it, it just... I could feel that the book was suddenly working. And now the only place where my mother's actual words are used is as the captions for the photographs. And I feel bad about that, but I put a big chunk of my mother's actual memoirs on my website. Um, and I just feel I, I wanted her story and she would want her story to reach other people. And the only way to do that is to make it interesting. So that's how I did it. Mm. Yep. You've written both fiction and non-fiction. Um, I'm interested in non-fiction and also in, in biographies and, and the difficulties of writing about people who are alive and their descendants. Um, I happen to know Deirdre, Mad uh, Deirdre Maddox, right. who I think I introduced you to your, her, your mother, uh, and I've been in contact with her family and they were very appreciative at, at the way you went about talking to her about her mother and the, the back-checking and whatever. So you clearly had a very high standard of research, particularly where it came to affecting people who, mm. you know, their children is alive. But um, as a as a non-fiction writer, how much pressure are you under, and, and for biography, how much pressure are you under to get it right or perhaps to be sensitive to the living and, you know, how much, how do you decide what to leave in and what to leave out when perhaps putting something in might be distressing to the living? Mm. Look, I just wouldn't put it in if it was going to be distressing to the living. Uh, my, my feel is that if, if if the st I mean, this story is basically about my mother and everything else is peripheral. So there could be nothing important enough to, to be worth distressing somebody whose story is not mine to tell. I mean, I do feel very strongly that people's stories 
have to be respected as belonging to them. They have the right to tell it in the way they want to tell it. You have the right to tell your own story, and I felt I had the right to tell my mother's story because she so much wanted it told. But um, I found everybody that I could find in the book. Uh, this lady knows uh, one of the characters in the book, and I uh, was lucky enough to be able to get in touch with her by serendipity, really. So I sent her the part of the book that involved her mother, and not only did she say, yes, this is all fine, but she then told me some wonderful stories which are in the book and which give the book life and colour and authenticity that, they, that it would not otherwise have had. So there were a lot of people I was not able to find. I found everybody I could. I did that with many people in the book. Some people I couldn't. Um, with those people, I went through and I thought, if, is there anything here that's likely to cause a problem? And if I thought there was, I just removed it. There's plenty of other stuff to talk about. There's plenty of other good stuff in the book. I don't have to take that risk. Mm. So yeah, that's, you, that's you didn't stance. take a journalistic approach. <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> no. I think there was a question here. Um, as an aspiring writer, hearing um, from you, uh, being a writer of your calibre and taking all those number of drafts that you needed to write a book has totally deflated me. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't have to be like that. Some writers get it right on the third or fourth draft. <laughs> Sometimes a book just has its own dilemma, doesn't it? That, yeah. that takes longer to nut out. That's right, yeah. Like bringing up a child, you know, some are easier than, than others. And <laughs> you just have to be very patient, stay with it and allow it to be itself. Both with children and books, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think there was another question. We we'll might have one more. There's a lady over there. Oh, she's gone. All right. Yes, Mum. Written this book, Kate. If you didn't know your mother wanted it written so much, if would you have thought of writing it? Uh, look, the question is whether I would have written this book if I hadn't been sure that Mum wanted it written. I doubt if I would have, actually. I think that's what gave me the authority to know that it would be that it would be okay. Uh, yeah, uh, look, I felt I felt as if I was violating and invading, even in the bits that I did kind of make up. Uh, so if I had not had her permission overall, I think I would have. Yielded, which may be why there are not that many books like this. I began mm. to think when I was writing it, maybe there's a good reason that there mm. aren't that many books about mm. somebody's mother. There are a lot of books about, you know, me and my mother, but there aren't that many books about my mother herself. And maybe that's why, because not many mothers have left this fabulous and loving resource for me to work on. Or maybe not many daughters are brave enough to go there. <laughs> <laughs> or <laughs> But but what a nice mother you have to come along and support you. I do, you. I do. Although she sits down the back because she gets too nervous for me. She gets really nervous, so she sits down the back, which is uh, interesting. We might finish up there. Look, Kate, thank you so much. It's a wonderful book. I just I loved reading this book, and um, you've done just you've done your mother proud in so many ways. Kate will be signing books in the bookshop the just over here straight after this session and um, I'd encourage you to to grab it it's it's wonderful thank you so much thank you, thank you very much thank you, thank you. absolutely wonderful fabulous
Thank you so much. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Bay Writers Festival 2015. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from Byron Bay Writers Festival on our website, byronbaywritersfestival.com.au and our iTunes.